Welcome to the podcast in search of the perfect movie soundtrack. When the movie needs the soundtrack as much as the soundtrack needs the movie. I'm Joshua Weber. Hi, I'm Heather Samples. And I'm Matt Lombardi, but you can call me Matt. (laughs) Join us this week as we travel back to the dawn of this new century to consider why some songs from a movie aren't on the soundtrack, the curious case of some songs that are, and the discovery that we are all, maybe not even that deep down, a little bit Patrick Bateman. So, what do you do? I'm into, uh, well, murders and executions mostly. This week's movie is American Psycho, released in Y2K, the year 2000 AD. That is after our Lord and Savior. Sorry, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing here. I feel lethal on the verge of frenzy. I think my mask of sanity is about to slip. Directed by Mary Heron, stars Christian Bale as a uh, high-achieving go-getter who likes to get business cards printed on fine papers and <laughs> slaughter women. Are you reading off Wiki- Wikipedia? <laughs> this is the IMDb description. <laughs> yes. I have all the characteristics of a human being, but not a single clear identifiable emotion. I simply am not there. I, uh... <laughs> I... Just <laughs> to kill a lot of people! For a number of reasons, I think that I would like to talk about the soundtrack first. And one of those reasons is it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly. The soundtrack, I mean the physical CD that you would have gone to the store and bought with these songs on it. And the reason that I'm stressing that physical CD aspect of it is be- is something that we'll talk about a little bit throughout the episode. But basically, the soundtrack is a series of songs that do not necessarily appear in the movie. But on the soundtrack itself, you basically have two types of songs. You have big hits from um, previous, mostly from the 80s. Because even though the movie is from 2000, it takes place in the 80s. That's an important point here. Yes, it takes place in the 80s. New Order's got a song on here, True Faith, one of their big songs. Eric B. and Rakim, Paid in Full. I feel great, so maybe I might just search for a nine to five. If I strive, then maybe I'll stay alive. So I walk up the street whistling. Information Societies, what's on your mind? I don't know what you're thinking. There are some things you can't. So it's got these really, really big songs that everybody remembers. They're on every, you know, I can't believe the 80s collection that you could buy, or whatever those <laughs> collection CDs the 80s. are. Yeah, I like how you mixed up. Now that's what I call it. Oh, yeah, and I it can't is. believe it's not butter. <laughs> that's what it is. <laughs> I was trying to make that connection. Thank you, Heather. I was like, I know what he's saying, but there's things mixed in there. Now, there's another ver- there's another group of songs in this soundtrack that I'm a little bit fascinated with there's songs that i imagine whoever was putting the soundtrack together wrote a letter to the artist involved and said dear blank you know whoever it is i know you probably don't have any bad songs but if you do could you please share it with us 
But I realize you probably don't have bad songs, so maybe you have a really shitty remix <laughs> that you could share with us instead. And to which David Bowie said, by God, you're right. I actually do have a really shitty remix that I could share with you. And Robert Smith said, you know what? As a matter of fact, I do. Because I didn't think that there was a bad David Bowie song until I listened to this actual soundtrack. <laughs> but this song... A rocket And it plays in the end credits of the film. It's called Something in the Air. It's the American Psycho remix. And uh, yeah, it's not It's not very good. It's really not um, very good. When, you can hear David Bowie's on it, but like yeah. other than that. Yeah. When, Joshua, when you picked this one, I, you know, the next day or whatever, I looked at the track listing and I was like, ooh, Bowie, that'll be fun. And then I listened to it. <laughs> yeah. The track listing is great. You look, you see David Bowie, you see The Cure, yeah. you see Daniel Ash from Love and Rockets. I'm a huge fan of Love and Rockets. But then you listen to the David Bowie song, you listen to The Cure song, listen to that goddamn Daniel Ash song. Oh, Lord. Yeah. They're bad. Yeah. That Cure song is that, if, if everything that you like about The Cure is not in that yeah. song. <laughs> I like your theory, though, about leftover songs that need a home. There's another weird aspect about this soundtrack, too. Whoever was in charge of putting together this soundtrack obviously was trying to make it very, quote-unquote, 2000 in certain ways. You've got, for instance, a, a cover of that song, You Spin Me Round, like a record. Yes. Uh, Dead or Alive? That sounds right, yeah. You spin me right round, baby, right round. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a, it's a cover of Dead or Alive, but it's really going for this like Marilyn Manson cover thing <laughs> that, that was popular. This is a time. great point. So I true. did not pick this up. I love this point. <clears throat> I did not realize the 2000-ness of it. did not need that it was such a fine song before that silly maybe but enjoyable remember that alien ant farm song that was a cover of uh, a michael jackson song yeah you wouldn't expect us to do this cover and they were doing them kind of hard yeah this dope song does that and it's it's just like really obvious it's not interesting at all They're but like, let's make it raw and dirty and hard <laughs> <laughs> It does seem like there's like this effort to to make it like fit into the era, like maybe it was going to be a hit or something. But not only is this not a hit, this this soundtrack is not available on streaming. Like you can't even get it on Spotify or these other sorts of streaming. I put together, you know, the compilation that I shared with you mm -hmm, guys mm -hmm. that I'll put on the um, um, our playlist, you know, on Spotify that we that we do uh, for all the soundtracks that we've done. But um, even that's incomplete. 
there are these tracks on the soundtrack that are that are John Cale. How would you describe John Cale? He's the multi-instrumentalist, avant-garde artist from the Velvet mm-hmm. Underground? Is yeah. that fair? Yeah, I think that's totally fair. Yeah, he's <laughs> he's amazing. He's great. He's listed as doing the music um, in the movie, like in the opening credits, he's listed as having done the score. In the soundtrack itself, there's these parts that are, say, John Cale, and then it's got clips of Christian Bale's monologues over it, which we're going to talk about those monologues in a little bit here as well. Anyway, the point is, I haven't heard those because this CD is not available, and I assume this CD is not available because it sucks. So, (laughs) thumbs down. I live in the American Gardens building on West 81st Street on the 11th floor. My name is Patrick Bateman. I'm 27 years old. I believe in taking care of myself, in a balanced diet and a rigorous exercise routine. In the morning, if my face is a little puffy, I'll put on an ice pack while doing my stomach crunches. I can do a thousand now. A lot of people consider this to be a a horror film. I think that's uh, worth debating, but certainly it's called a horror film by mm-hmm. most of its fans. Um, the people who made it consider it to be a comedy. A horror comedy, I've seen. I also think that's worth debating, but again, the people who made it, Christian Bale and the director, Mary Heron, and the co-writer who she wrote it with, they all think it's very, very funny. It is definitely a satire. The book was meant to be a satire. The name of the book and the name of the movie is clearly a satire. You know, why Why does it matter that he's American? But it does. Do you think it works? Is it a good satire? Is it a good horror? Is it a good comedy? Is it none of the above? I don't know. What do you guys think? Oh, that's such a good question. I, you know, I think that how much I like the movie depends on what genre I assign it to. Interesting. If, if I treat it as a comedy, I think it's a piece of shit. <laughs> like it's it's like just never funny enough to justify all of its ridiculous stretching narratively and like politically it's ridiculous. I didn't find it funny either. If I call it a satire, I'm I'm also not in, into it because I'm like satire requires more insight than this movie is able to have about the thing it's satirizing. Mm-hmm. This movie is like taking to my mind pretty low-hanging fruit and and shooting like pretty big elephant-sized bullets at it, um, which is like not what I'm looking for in satire. I want satire to to be finding something new to show me about a thing I've begun to take for granted. But if I call it a horror movie, suddenly it becomes much more watchable and interesting. Because in a horror movie, I am fully ready for women's bodies to be a site of like narrative progression. Okay. In a in a horror movie, I am fully prepared for characters to be rather one dimensional. In a horror movie, I understand that uh, I will experience moments of gross out. I will. I will not always be uh, thinking very hard that I might be watching the movie in a really bodily way rather than like a really intellectual way. I think that it's in this movie's best interest to call itself a horror movie. Is, is it, can it be a horror if it's not scary? Because hmm. I definitely don't think this movie is ever scary. No, this movie is not scary. Is yeah. Evil Dead scary? Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. There's, there's moments really? in Evil Dead that are scary. Oh, it's you fun. would. You, it's you a would, good time. <laughs> Oh, Evil Dead's hilarious. Of course, the Evil Dead's a wonderful movie. It's it's hilarious, but it's also got 
true terror in it. I mean, I'm not terrified. By what I mean I is there's moments that are me. actually scary. Yeah, I agree with Joshua. I, th- I think that it's... If you showed it to a, like an 11-year-old, yeah. they would get freaking scared. It would pass the sleepover test. Yeah. <laughs> I actually, um, surprisingly, was enjoying this movie. But on a, on, a, on a level I didn't expect, because it's, it's known as a horror comedy, or it's referred to when I was reading some reviews and stuff. People call it a mm-hmm. horror comedy. And I had avoided it because it was the end of the 90s, and I was just kind of burnt out on the stylized violence commentary shit. And I feel like this kind of fits in. We could talk about like sure. the weird narrative trick with like Fight Club and um pulp fiction and all all that all that stuff and it was the year 2000 you know and i was in college and i was like oh this just seems like a a 90s movie and people talked about this right a lot right they talked about the book they talked about this movie it was outrageous so i just avoided it and then i finally sat down to watch it the other night and it felt like a real underdog to me and i was reading about it and i was reading about like mary heron refusing to make it without christian bale he had only been like the 13 year old kid in what's the spielberg movie empire of the sun newsies and they were looking at, oh yeah newsies yeah he was in both of those yeah so that was the last time you saw him he was dying to play it he was obsessed with the role and they ended up with a budget which i think is essentially nothing in 2000 it's not nothing but it's a really small film for 7 million and they had to shoot it quick and it looks cheap and it feels like an indie movie and all of a sudden i was charmed by that heather's right in that some satire is really complex and some isn't at, at all one of my favorite movies is john carpenter's they live if you've ever seen right. they live it's just like the most heavy-handed anti-capitalism funny movie where you put on glasses and all the businessmen and cops are aliens and you have to kill them <laughs> and it's just this fun and there's like uh, roddy 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 pipers in it and wrestlers and it's just this like trashy funny anti-capitalist movie i feel like um sorry to bother you kind of is in this genre where it's just these like stark didactic movies and this is like he's a homicidal maniac and he's a metaphor for misogynism and capitalism and stuff but you know i thought something was funny was billy crudup turned down the role because he was so uncomfortable with it because he wanted to talk about backstory and um there was supposed to be no backstory and christian bell was like no you're supposed to be like sent from mars as this weird monster and billy crudup wanted to him to have motivations and to humanize him um but this is what mary heron and um christian bell were in on that you couldn't do that and he said he just thought of his agent tom cruise and donald trump as these weird 80s people and was just trying to embody whatever that thing is and he had pictures of them in his trailer and i think his performance is very strange wait and are you saying that christian bale's like influences like his Tom mood, Cruise his mood board yeah he said those were like his mood yeah he actually had pictures of them on his w- yeah. trailer yeah in his trailer he'd have Trump and uh, Tom Cruise and he'd be like okay 80s man psycho and his agent let's go and his agent he's like let's go and he was the point to him and the director was there was supposed to be nothing human about him he was just supposed to be a representation of everything that's horrible about the male in America. Right. Well, that's as deep as the movie gets. And the kind of comedy that you don't laugh at. Like I was smirking and I was like, ah, good for them. Is it a great movie? No, but if you like movies, it's fun to just watch a, a strange moment in time of actors that are going to become huge and a movie that was super cheap, but strangely charming. I found. Okay. Uh, 
I like movies. I didn't share that opinion, but you know, like, <laughs> well, no, I mean like if you like nerding yeah. out about stuff and I never, I, I think cause I never knew this movie. So I was like learning about it as I watched it. And there was lots of little surprises I didn't expect. You go and you wanted to like find the American Psycho soundtrack and you went to Spotify or something like that. What you end up finding is you end up finding a lot of playlists people have put together of music from American Psycho. And most of it is not on the soundtrack, Um, but it's kind of a truer depiction of what the movie's music actually is. And yeah, totally. You'd get a much better sense of the movie from listening to it than from Absolutely. the CD. Right. And so we've had this issue before. In Big Chill, there were some very important songs um, in the movie that weren't on at least the original version of the soundtrack, like the Rolling Stones song. And Matt, I think, has coined what we're going to call this thing from now on. You want to talk about that, Matt? The Shadow soundtrack. Dun dun. Who knows what lurks at the heart of men? The Shadow soundtrack knows. <laughs> and it's when it's, it, it, it would happen in real time as a young man, as a young boy, you'd buy a soundtrack to a movie you like, and then you'd start to say, oh, wait, I thought this song was in the movie. And you couldn't look it up on online, so you just live in this strange world until you saw the movie again, and then you'd say, oh, yeah, this song is in it. Now with the internet, you can just look it up, and they'll be like, here's the track right. listing, here's the soundtrack released by the record company what was i don't know how that works what was paid for what was licensed and then here are the songs that didn't make the cd maybe for record company reasons um but are prominently filmed in the movie and i think this could be a super stellar soundtrack that would help the um legacy if you will of this film oh for sure if you wanted to hear the movie from the 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 music from this movie that's what you would get you would get the shadow soundtrack you would get people's playlists they've put together that that is that is pretty good i mean uh you know just just to give a an overview walking on sunshine katrina and the waves simply irresistible Mm -hmm. robert palmer In Too Deep and Susudio by Phil Collins, which play a big role in a monologue we're going to talk about here in a little bit. Uh, Lady in Red, Krista Berg. Lady in Red is dancing with me. A musical version of The Greatest Love of All. Whitney Houston's another monologue that we get. The, uh, yeah, there's a bunch mm-hmm. of uh, songs that, you know, hit songs fun songs definitely capture the era capture the popular 80s music sound that if you are looking up music from this movie you're probably looking for that yeah and i think i was thinking while watching it and i know you you'd you'd tip me off how the soundtrack's a little different than a lot of the music in the movie but i was thinking wow this would be such a great 80s yuppie soundtrack if you want to just have this like fun cd of like 80s yuppie hits um and I think it would work. I would put this on. It could have been the big chill. Yeah, um, exactly. Because you think of yeah. the big chill, you think of Boogie Nights in the 70s. This could have had a. This could have been the, the fun 80s one that you can throw on at a party because there's simply irresistible or walking on sunshine and then reminisce about torture. Right. Um, My question for you about this, though, is, is about where this fits in with our mission. Because this, these songs that I just named, which, which are essential to understanding this film, I would say 
are not yeah. actually on the soundtrack. Totally. And this podcast is called The Perfect Movie Soundtrack, not The Perfect Movie Shadow Soundtrack or The Perfect yeah. Movie Soundtrack and its shadow. So, yeah, yeah. how does it, what are we going to do about this? Yeah. I have a lot of thoughts about this. I, I I mean, I think we've talked about, I don't know how much we've talked about it on air in our episodes. Mm-hmm. So maybe for listeners, it, it might not be as like top of mind. Yeah. But I think the three of us have yeah. talked a lot about how often this comes up for us. You know, we'll, we'll pick a movie and we'll go, we'll start to go listen and they'll yes. be like, shit, none of these <laughs> fucking songs I associate with watching right. this movie are on the fucking soundtrack. So I, I've kind of come to think of it in two different ways. One is when the shadow soundtrack uh, is the thing that makes the movie meaningful to me, I'm all for leaning into and treating it as the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Like, why the fuck should I listen to what the record company and like the movie studio decided was the soundtrack for this movie? Like, they actually don't get to decide that. The, the audience gets to decide that. But when we're talking about the soundtrack as an album and an artifact that traveled through the culture on its own, and I think that this is a a very particular case. It's it's the Pulp Fiction case. It's the Train Spotting case. It's the Waiting to Exhale case. It's the Bodyguard case. It's like these movies that had you know, released soundtracks, released various artists' soundtracks that became an entry mm-hmm. point for a whole set of music to people, then I think you do want to talk about what the mm-hmm. record company and the movie studio were doing because they're the ones who are controlling and authoring that experience as that album moved around the culture. But when we're talking about, you know, just like enjoying a movie and all the music right. you associate with it... I'm all for the shadow soundtrack being just as, or in some cases, more important than whatever was like pressed into vinyl. Yeah, I I totally agree. And I think you separated that perfectly because there's times when you grew up, and this is very much having a CD, where you loved the soundtrack and maybe haven't seen the movie or didn't see the movie. Yep, yep. And so then it becomes an album. But then there's some movies where the director was said like for 10 years... I always wanted to use this song and I had the scene in my mind and this was going to happen and it's beautiful. It's wonderful. And then you get the soundtrack and it's not on it. And so then you can't, you're removed from the movie and you can't participate in it. But we live in this weird time because 2000, I think this is around where we talk about the big soundtrack era. I think this is where it dies because you have the playlist. And one time I remember looking up the Rushmore soundtrack and realizing how many songs are in movies because there's the soundtrack. But then if you find the playlist, it's like 24 songs or something or like 28 songs and it's right. huge. And then you see just the like 12 or 15 that made the soundtrack. So you then decide, I think every, I don't know. Do you decide to listen now to the playlist or the soundtrack? What do you guys do? The official original motion picture soundtrack, or do you go with the playlist? I tried to do it with this movie, but you, you have to do the playlist. There is no yeah. official. Yeah. You don't always have a choice anymore. Yeah. Anyway, I think we should feel totally comfortable to talk about shadow soundtracks whenever it feels like that's the most authentic way to discuss our experience of the movie and the music. And then I think there are going to be times like when we finally get up the balls to do train spotting, for example, when we can't talk about the shadow soundtrack because that album uh, was was as much, if not a bigger deal than the movie. Yeah, it's its own solidified, like a mixtape solidified in 
in its own time. Well, it's yeah. easy. Yeah, it's totally. easy in this case because this album is not significant at all. Like no one, no one. Yeah, nobody was like, yeah. dude, I just got the new American. Yeah, right. No, you can't even find it. So it's out. not. It's yeah, definitely and you're like yeah. walking on sunshine. They're like, it's not on there. <laughs> walking on sunshine. <laughs> Girl, I know the difference between right and wrong. I ain't gonna do nothing to break up our happy home. Oh, I don't get so excited when I come home a little late at night. Let's talk about one of these songs from the uh, Shadow soundtrack. Matt, I think you had one in mind that you were particularly interested in. I, I love when you completely forget a song exists and then you hear it. And then you immediately like it before you can think about if you like it or not. You know that feeling I'm talking about before, like anything can interfere. Yep. You're just like, oh, I'm enjoying the song. I like the song. And it's a really funny one. It's If You Don't Know Me By Now, it's the Simply Red version from 1989. And in my research, just to be a stickler, this movie's supposed to take place in 1987. And the song's from 1989, so that's a mistake. But the book Ooh. is 1989. So I don't know if he mentions it in the book or not. Um, but I love a song that has a long life and despite who's singing it, it's a good enough song and it lasts. And I think it's, it's one of these creepy scenes. It's when he takes a sex worker home and he's drawing her a bath and quietly in the background, if you don't know me by now is playing and it sounds very romantic, very romantic. And <laughs> I was thinking about this song and as a kid, I was probably 10 and it was just on, it was like a big, big, huge hit. And I, and and it I was got a, a cover. And I took her home and drew a bath. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I had a great allowance. Um, <laughs> but then I came to know the song as the cover of it. And it was originally a huge hit also in 1972. It was originally written for Patti LaBelle. She didn't sing it. It became part of her repertoire in the 80s. But she didn't sing it or go with it. And the group Harold Melvin and the blue notes, a Philadelphia soul group had a huge hit with it in 1972. It was, um, number three on the billboards, wow. number one on the R&B charts. And the lead singer of that band was, um, Teddy Pendergrass. Okay. Who then goes on to write just these like great, he has like five platinum albums where he just writes this kind of like, the stereotypical music you think of when you turn down the lights yep. and you're going to have sex. I think his lyrics like, are pretty much. Oh yeah, down baby. The lights. We're about to have sex. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. He's actually really good at it. You know, everyone gives yeah, Barry, sure. Barry white a lot of credit, but he is great at it. And some of his song titles are love TKO. These are his hits. When, when somebody, Oh, close the door, turn off the lights. They're feel the fire. We're getting ready to have sex. They're, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, Strangely enough, that it goes from a Philadelphia soul band in the 70s to a British Manchester band yeah. covering it. They were a British soul band. They have a huge hit with it. And I kind of feel like it was perfect for this movie because, you know, the original is great. It's still a great song, even when Simply Red sings it. And they have this really funny, super dramatic, like slow snare drum hit 
like it reminds you of like a Don Henley thing, right? It's kind of okay, overproduced, yeah, got that late yeah. 80s sound. Don Henley um, should have fired his agent for not being featured in this movie. Like all of his, yeah. all of his brethren were in totally, this movie. He totally could have showed up in I this. I promise you Don Henley would have shut that down because, because <laughs> he is so self-important that he would like, there's no way he would allow his, mo- his, his precious music to be used in this way. Also, weird Henley fun fact, he's also a serial killer. I believe that. I believe it. I 100% it. believe that. I've seen that four-hour sequel documentary twice. I completely I believe it. Um, but I think it's also funny with kind of the bad comedy that you guys were not enjoying. The song is literally, If You Don't Know Me By Now. She doesn't know he's a psycho killer. We don't know if he's really even killing people. He doesn't know if he's really even killing people. So I was like, this is the fun. This is a nice moment. Hits the 80s vibe. And then the idea of the song is a joke itself. And I want to, I can't wait for the clip to hit our listeners' ears so they can remember it. But I would say, while Simply Red does pretty good 80s job of it, the 1972 Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes version is, is, is the best. There is an idea of a Patrick Bateman, some kind of abstraction, but there is no real me, only an entity, something illusory. And though I can hide my cold gaze, and you can shake my hand and feel flesh gripping yours, and maybe you can even sense our lifestyles are probably comparable, I simply am not there. All right, so one of the things about this movie that I think was interesting is that, uh, the the setting. Of course, I'm interested in that because I lived in New York <laughs> City for 15 years or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Both of you still do live in New York City. And this setting is interesting to me because it felt to me very much like a very stereotypical upper-class New York City setting that I've been seeing in movies for a long, long time, especially in the 80s and the 90s. It's just funny to me that there's this idea of New York that films love to traffic in. These these scenes that are these exaggerated versions of like what people imagine New York is like that movies did a lot. So to me, there's a very funny sort of idea of New York, especially upper class New York that you see in a lot of movies and that this one traffics in that. Did you guys see that as well? Yeah, it's like very bonfire of the vanities. Yes. Oh, the perfect, perfect example. Yeah. As things were all a little strange to me, like his yeah. office, I was like, that doesn't look like a New York office. No. And then some of the restaurants, I was like, uh, I don't know. What is that? Where is that? Right. Like, yeah. what is that space? Yeah. Well, uh, so I was thinking about this idea of the unrealistic New York City. And since we all know New York City pretty well, I was wondering if you have specific uh, examples of particular movies or something. Oh, yeah. And one of the classic examples actually from television is that people always laugh about is the, the apartment that the friends mm-hmm. live in. That's the big example. Oh, yeah. sure. Right, that each of the friends live in these apartments that that we all know would cost, uh, or like Carrie Bradshaw's apartment. Well, yeah, Carrie Bradshaw. But she but paid seven. She paid seven hundred fifty dollars for that apartment. Apparently, in the show. No, yeah. Matt. Wow. I don't know why. I don't know why I know that because it's, it was one of those things where people complain, like the friends' apartment. So, based on that idea, I was wondering if you guys have like particular movies that you think that that always struck you as like really funny in their, in their depictions of New York City. Well, it didn't always strike me this way. Uh, in fact, it snookered me, and it wasn't until after I got here that I realized it was a lie. Uh, <laughs> I can't wait. What I is know. this going to be? <laughs> the Muppets Take Manhattan, which I know. Wait, wait, wait. Know. No, 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 no. That has some great New York shit in it. <laughs> you thought How dare you? Everywhere. 
<laughs> How dare <laughs> Wait, you're like, you the rats don't cook they, in the kitchen. They took Manhattan. Manhattan is supposed to belong to the Muppets. They conquered it. I know. I know your first thought is like, There is great Heather, New York in there. That's, I guess. Sardis. Okay, I'm, I'm getting All right, there. sorry. I love this movie. <laughs> um, the first the first is like, well, Heather, that's a children's movie. Yeah, right. So it, also debatable. It because I've watched it. <laughs> it doesn't have to actually depict like the true right. reality of New York. But here's what that movie did to me. It made me believe that New York was this magical place where you could come and your dreams could come true. Okay. And I to this day believe that <laughs> with all of my heart and soul. Wow. Yeah, what's like, the problem? I, I I I I feel just as like inspired by New York as the woman, the waitress who Kermit hangs out with too much, who wants to be a fashion designer. Yes. I feel just as inspired as like all the Muppets who know that Manhattan Melodies is the show that must be taken to Broadway. But I think that that like those first early years in the city. Uh, when it really dawned on me that like, wow, I had, I had like formed this mythological idea of this place Mm. as a small child because like Kermit and Ralph and Scooter and Miss Piggy were singing a musical that they needed to make to the great white way. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, You're right, Matt. There are some great New York things. Like there's Gregory Hines on the roller skates in Central Central Park. Park. Like it's, it's there's Joan Rivers at like Bloomingdale. Liza Minnelli. Oh yeah. The Joan Rivers scene. I love that. I love this movie, by the way. It's like one of my all time faves. But it's, but at the same time, like it definitely is propaganda. It is, it is Pro- like yeah. straightforward New York propaganda. New York City <laughs> probably paid for pr- yeah. part of the production. The Muppets were like, why should Woody Allen have all the fun? We're going to make a grotesquely worshipful movie of New York about making it in the big city. But that's always been the New York. Right? If you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. That's always been the narrative. Yeah. It's, it's like I said, it's propaganda. <laughs> it's, it's propaganda for the mythos. Muppets Take Manhattan, not realistic, total <laughs> propaganda for the New York mythology. I bought it hook, line, and sinker, and I stand by it, and I'm glad that I remain a subject of this mythology. Um, but just want to go on the record, hard disagree. <laughs> We're still going to Broadway, guys. We need more frogs and chickens and stuff, or whatever the line is. Frogs and chickens and bears and weirdos? Yeah. <laughs> Matt, do you have a more normal person's answer to this question? <laughs> Being John Malkovich, yeah, fun movie. There's palm trees in it. It was all shot in L.A. Huh. The classic Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies, one, two, and three. Yeah. Two has the classic yeah. above-ground train that doesn't exist. I get they're kind of doing a Gotham City version of New York for Spider-Man, but Spider-Man 3 is notorious for all its Cleveland landmarks. Oh, wow. <laughs> Joshua, do you have one? Do you have a movie that just annoys the shit out of you for its representation of New York? Well, no, I have one that I think is very funny because of it, which is the, uh, and I don't remember what the official title of it is. I could look it up, but so can you if you're listening to this. It's the uh, Friday the 13th where Jason goes to New York. Um, (laughs) I think it's Jason Takes Manhattan. Is that what it is? Jason Takes Manhattan? So it's named after the the Muppet movie. (laughs) <laughs> the uh it's just really they, they they clearly are having fun with it it's it's definitely it's where it's yeah it's jason, jason takes manhattan jason has already jumped the shark so much in terms of like you, he's not th- these movies aren't serious at all and, and they know they're not they're funny he goes to space and one a couple later um but um in the new york one it's funny because he's like you know jason's like 
uh, an inhuman character, right? He's not, he doesn't mix into a crowd, but he's in New York City. He's like on the subway, <laughs> walking slow, you know, from subway car to subway car, which would just be like, run like well i don't know it's just funny shit like that where it's like imagine new york city which is such a congested place with some guy who walks really slow with a with a knife and can kill people in extravagant ways with his bare hands and there's one scene in particular that i always saw was very funny where he's go they're like in an alley you know because the big new york city alleys and uh Mm -hmm. he uh he grabs this guy and he like tosses him in like the nearest trash can that's full of acid. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, oh yeah, the, the, it's the, full the, of the, acid? the trash the trash can of acid. Yeah. The classic New York trash cans of acid everywhere. <laughs> and it's what's funny is it's part eight of the Jason Takes Manhattan. And I love that he's walking around in New York and people still don't know that this guy's up to something. <laughs> Yeah, no, totally. Like, I mean, yeah, They're like, you know. Haven't I seen that guy before? Um, Only seven times. Right. <laughs> there are actually a couple songs on the physical soundtrack that are in the film and play a role in the film. And uh, one of those is a song that, you know, of course, pretty much anybody who was alive anywhere around this era, this 20, 30 year era, whatever window we want to call the time from when this song came out to the movie, whatever would know, which is pump up the volume. I mean, okay, first of all, disclaimer, you could talk about this song the way that like Robert Caro would talk about LBJ or Robert Moses. Like this could be a, a like wow. eight volume fucking biography <laughs> of uh, of the song. And you could- I you bet could, that'd be a big seller. <laughs> well, I mean, a lot of fucking people buy The Power Broker. Doesn't mean they read it, but they bought it. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Um, you could really go for like an entire- Truly, a whole book could be written about uh, this song, all of the samples inside of it, how this song traveled around the world, what it meant to the people who uh, wow. listened to it. You, you could, you could really blow this out. I am not going to do that. One, because I am simply not expertised enough to, and two, I'm going to trust that our audience doesn't actually need me to. That what uh, that what we are most interested in is understanding enough about this song to like appreciate it in a new light, in a way okay. that maybe we we wouldn't otherwise. Well, I'm glad we're not raising the bar to needing to be experts because we would be in trouble <laughs> for a, a lot of a lot of what we've talked about so far and what we will talk about in the future. <laughs> true, true, but I feel like a lot of the time when we're being uh, our armchair selves, like it's totally chill because like what are the stakes? But right, this, okay. this somehow feels to me like I don't know some like Frank Black Pixies guy is like going to come after me on the right. internet. <laughs> That guy is me. <laughs> Other than knowing this song very well, like anybody my age would, I didn't know anything about it. When I was doing a little research for this, pretty much everything I read was brand new. So anything okay. you know here, I'll say that I, for instance, did not know anything about it. Yeah, okay. same. Okay, good. So here's here, here's what I want to tell you about Pump Up the Volume. I, the first thing I want to tell you is that in 
the 90s, I was a club kid in the late 90s in college. <laughs> and uh, Pick, Picks or it didn't happen? <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, there are definitely picks. They were not taken oh, on. I Instagram mean. awaits. They were definitely not taken on phones because phones didn't exist. Um, anyway, I, and and this song feels to me like it, it's like so of this this community, like people who really go to a club, which is what what's happening in the in the movie when we hear this song. By the way, is like one of the one of the scenes mm-hmm. where the characters are at a club. Um, they know this song, and and they they have like a real emotional connection to it. So, pump up the volume is uh, a ni- 1987 song. It was actually Grammy nominated. Uh, can you think of the kind of category you would have in in 1987 for this kind of song i happen to have seen this earlier so okay. your framing of it is funny to me because you're you're making a good point here yeah they didn't have a place to put it this isn't the kind of music <laughs> uh, that, okay. that existed enough for there to be a, a very intuitive category so they end up putting it in instrumental so it's grammy nominated for best instrumental song which is weird um, because there's tons of words in it right yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's right. But it doesn't have a singer. Because um, I, I guess it's samples, right? Yeah, it's all samples. It says samples. And, I, and I'll, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you a couple of, uh, actually, since we're already talking about samples, I'll, I'll tell you my favorite sample in it is Jesse Jackson. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so there's this moment when, uh, when, you hear, when you hear this voice saying, brothers and sisters, I don't know what this world is coming to. That's Jesse Jackson. That's, um, that would have been a really timely one because 80, did he run for president in 84 or 88? 80, I want to say it was 88. It was eight. I think it was 88. It was 88. So he was probably running when yeah. they, when they made, used that sample. Totally. There's uh, a great, yeah, there's a great book about that primary in 88. It's wild. <laughs> you would know that, Matt. That's real Matt wheelhouse right there. Um, <laughs> No, it's known. Uh, it's known in DC as the greatest campaign book ever written, like by all the wonks and the campaign people. <laughs> um, anyway, so we we get it, and it comes out as a white label. It's like it, and immediately it blows up in the mm. UK dance club scene, and people just absolutely love it. It's n- it's not canonical house or dance or electronic music, but it is coming out at a moment when that is. We're all really ready for it, and it, it's, it's kind of, I think when you listen to it, especially in headphones, you can hear how it was made for that. Like, you can hear the sounds moving between your left and right ear, and kind of, it almost feels like the sound is coming forward and back. Like, there's an awareness of the room, and how you might be playing this in, uh, in, a, in a space, in a club, where you'd want to be calling on some parts of the room to, like, fire up while you then and then like wait and call in another part of the room like there's an awareness of bodies in space and listening to this song that to me feels like very much like club music um and was and was probably like a pretty big innovation um and and not not something that you could find just anywhere there's this kind of just like really to me lovely organic nature to the song it was built for a community that and it was built to be used it was music to be used um, and you can still hear that in it. Some people say that it is kind of the beginning of Acid House, and I, I want to go on record as saying I do not believe that to be the case. Mm, All right. Um, okay. We need mail here. Yeah, I mean, maybe somebody will 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 come will come on our Twitter, Instagram, or whatever, and tell tell me I'm I'm wrong. But 
To me, you can't have Acid House without a Roland TV303. I love it. It is the synthesizer that is like absolutely required for true Acid House. If you just Google TV303, you will hear the weird kind of like sound that it makes on everything it touches. But I don't think this song has a 303 in it. It does have spookiness that a lot of Acid House also has. And I think that's maybe part of why people uh, associate it with yeah. like the very beginning of Acid House. But whatever. I don't think I don't think that's that's quite the case. It's also not true house music. It doesn't have a consistent 4-4 beat for the entirety of the song. There are like moments of breakbeat in it. It's actually got a lot going on that's really fun. Um, and while you may not want to listen to five minutes of it on its own, you would very much like to to like hear hear a couple minutes of it on a night when you have some friends over. And I think it's like it's 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 a uh, it's a great song. People who who loved this song and danced to this song were were people who were like finding their path. Uh-oh. Um, and we're definitely not Patrick Bateman's. <laughs> Did you know that Whitney Houston's debut LP called simply Whitney Houston had four number one singles on it? Did you know that, Christy? You, you actually listen to Whitney Houston? <laughs> you own a Whitney Houston CD? <laughs> More than one? <laughs> Ooh. It's hard to choose a favorite among so many great tracks. <laughs> but the greatest love of all is one of the best, most powerful songs ever written about self-preservation and dignity. Its universal message crosses all boundaries and instills one with the hope that it's not too late to better ourselves since <laughs> it's impossible in this world we live in to empathize with others we can always empathize with ourselves it's an important message crucial really and it's beautifully stated on the album so the book is very much of the time that the movie's set. Like, you have to imagine he probably started writing it in, you know, 1987, 1988, something like that. And there's an interesting moment happening here in the era where the culture is becoming way, way, way too aware of itself, right? Hmm. And 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 mm-hmm. this idea that if things are popular, they are good begins to happen. Now, it's in the early stages in the 80s. People are very critical of it at the time. I mean, Bill Hicks, for instance, the comedian, is half of his routine. If you listen to any comedy show he did from like, you know, 1988, 1990, something like that, half of it is this intense hatred of the idea that he turns on his TV and he sees commercials with like George Michael and Michael Jackson and Madonna. Like he despises what the world is becoming. Now, of course, he dies in like 1994, something like that. So he doesn't have to see the. Exactly. Little did he know how much worse it would become. (laughs) And this is what Christian Bale's character is satirizing. He does these monologues about these artists like um, Huey Lewis, Whitney Houston, Phil Collins. And the, the idea is that, and he's picked these people who are incredibly superficially 
pop musicians. Now, keep in mind, we've come to gain more respect for people like this since then, right? Like we think of Whitney Houston as like a really valuable Mm -hmm. singer and all this stuff, but you know. The music nerds love Phil Collins now. The point of it was, and this point is made really clear in the monologues, that this is tongue in cheek. Like we are supposed to realize that what Patrick Bateman is talking about is pure pop and not that it's cool pop, that it's pure pop. And the fact that he thinks it's cool is a satirization of what's happening in America, happening in the culture. And I think the fact that it coincides with sort of the soundtrack becoming such a big thing and the soundtracks being compilations of hit songs or inviting musicians to add a song, getting somebody like, Jesus, Paul McCartney to do a song called Spies Like Us. Mm-hmm. Like the fact that this great song, something being popular becomes like its own reward. I think there's one other thing here that's worth pointing out too, is which is that like Patrick Bateman, the Christian Bale character, the American psycho, if you will, um, <laughs> is uh, he's choosing this music to be interested in precisely because he doesn't have uh, enough humanity to actually be moved by music. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, in like a, in a genuine way, so he so he's like just kind of uh, play acting in the language of the culture. Mm-hmm. He's like, oh, the culture tells me to pay attention to Phil Collins. I will treat Phil Collins as like the word of God mm-hmm. and and like take this received wisdom as as my like oh this is what is cool and I will I will I will treat it as though I have discovered it and it matters to me. But that's all a performance and therefore like not cool. He's obsessed with new music, new pop music, very, very pop popular music. And he has a couple monologues um, that that are a big part of the movie. There's three of them in particular. And I was wondering, Heather, if you'd want to tell us about those a little bit. Yeah. So the three of them that appear in the movie are Whitney Houston, Phil Collins and Huey Lewis. Um, And they don't all get the same amount of time. Right. Like he spends he lavishes adjectival phrases yes. on Huey Lewis, whereas Whitney only gets like a minute or so on uh, about her eponymous album. Hers is the shortest. The other two are pretty similarly long. You do get the sense in watching these scenes, even the short one, the Whitney one, uh, that it's like just droning, boring, yes. uh, kind of, it's like white, it's white noise. Um, yeah. And Joshua, I think you said mm-hmm. something to us earlier today that I thought was like really insightful about them, which was that uh, one of the things that defines them is that they 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 don't have any wisdom or insight. Um, and yet they are more than statements of fact. Like he's making a thesis. He has a, an argument. He has a point of view in all of these monologues about the particularly the lyrics of these songs. But but there's n- there's nothing. It's the most vapid, right? Yeah, empty, meaningless, meaningless to the point of like nihilism. Yeah. Oh, for sort sure. Of, yeah. Sort of diatribes. He's getting his like serial killer dick hard by talking about hip to be square, right. which is yeah. off four. The follow up four as in F O R E with an exclamation mark afterwards because it's the it's the uh, golf. <laughs> The golf, uh, yeah, yeah, what, what you, you yell yeah. when you play golf, and and I've seen Huey Lewis, who, by the way, I'm a fan of, um, talk about the naming <laughs> of that record, and it's just the laziest thing in the world. It's literally like these dudes. So he's huge at the time. He had he had the song on the Back to the Future soundtrack. They're huge, so they're just playing golf and like making music and stuff. Like so, the record company's like, you got to give us a title. You got to give us a title. He's like, huh. it's our fourth record. We play golf four. 
Oh, genius. Oh, yeah, that's it. It's just so dumb. <laughs> and that's, I mean, they're they're a, they're like a bar band who made it big somehow. Because he's his, his actually a decent songwriter. I don't have it with me right here, but I have on the album Sport, the inner sleeve is, I think, the funniest inner sleeve in the history of vinyl. <laughs> I know what you're talking about. I'm going to give take a picture of it. Isn't and it share sports it with, you guys. with an S? It maybe it's sports with an S. Maybe it is. And uh, I'm going to share yeah, it with you guys so we, we can put it on the Instagram so people can see it. But it is it is it's clear great. that that Huey Lewis in the News was invited to sing the national anthem at like maybe maybe a low-level college basketball game, maybe a high school <laughs> basketball game. And they somebody took three snapshots of it. And the, it, the, the inner sleeve is just like these random snapshots shot at like mid-level oh of just these God. dudes walking out onto the middle of this janky court and sick it's it's wonderful it's great but these guys yeah so yes he's being brought up here because it's supposed to be funny huey lewis is cheesy huey lewis is is pure pop yeah. drivel and the other thing is that that huey lewis is that patrick bateman's rants like just are dumb too in a way basically because for instance in the Huey Lewis one he talks about how Huey Lewis is often compared to Elvis Costello Huey Lewis is not compared to Elvis Costello they are not compared <laughs> to each other here's the connection there on one of Elvis Costello's first records Huey Lewis was a harmonica player in the room Huey Lewis was a so session maybe there was some in influence I've I can see him. if this is it as an Elvis Costello song. I've heard them both talk about it before, and they're like, yeah, we don't know each other. We have no connection. <laughs> we have nothing to do with each other. Like, he, ha I, you know, yes, they happen to have been in a room once together. But the bigger example of this, and the one that's supposed to be played, I think, for laughs, if you're, like, in on the joke with Brett Easton Ellis, obviously, is the way that he basically hated Genesis until Peter Gabriel leaves and Phil Collins takes over. <laughs> and then his favorite Genesis record is the one in the 80s that is like the big hit record that Phil Collins sings all the songs. Mm -hmm. And then when Phil Collins goes solo and fully embraces his 100% pop artist, cheesy, you know, groovy kind of love, stars in the movie Buster kind of thing, mm -hmm. um, that's when Bateman thinks that he's a genius. So you're supposed yeah. to be hearing this and being like, Dude, what are you talking about? Now, in the movie, nobody would think that because no one gives a shit. But that's also part of the point, right? Is that he's ranting about something that no How does one Huey Lewis, gives a shit about. How does Huey Lewis feel about that? That's what I want to know. Feel about what? About how they're just propped up as... I um, promise you he thinks it's funny. I mean, dude, the dude has got... He looks... Life to him is like... All right, man. Cool. <laughs> hey, that's fine. You want a number one song? Here you go. Well, doesn't he even have like a brief comeback with like a Gwyneth Paltrow movie? He's in a Gwyneth Paltrow movie. Yeah, he starred in one. And they like sing and then all of a sudden he's back and they he, and I was like, man, this dude's life is so easy. I agree. Yeah, I think he's got a pretty charmed life. Yeah, for sure. You like Huey Lewis in the news? In 87, Huey released this. Four, their most accomplished album. I think their undisputed masterpiece is Hip to Be Square. A song so catchy, most people probably don't listen to the lyrics, but they should, because it's not just about the pleasures of conformity and the importance of trends, it's also a personal statement about the band itself. Hey, Paul! There's a real irony here with these rants, I think. 
it's supposed to be funny and strange that he's obsessively talking about um cheesy pop and Huey Lewis and like you know the uh I don't know if you want to call it a movement but yacht rock becomes big these kind of hits kind of are reintroduced into um the uh, society's listening cloud in a way but i think in the 90s and especially the late 90s and 2000 this was just garbage, garbage pop that people laughed about now people make good cases for huey lewis now so th- the fact that they're playing it for comic effect on why you would go on and on about the minutia of this is strange to me because we have the internet now and this is what pitchfork does or what a lot of music writing does and they take something as poppy and you know motivated by cheesy record companies and considered in poor taste and not high art and then they deconstruct it and tell you what synthesizer was used and who was singing backup on it and the struggles they had with the songwriting and essentially doing what he's doing so i think it loses its effect in the movie now because i do what he does and rant about weird pop music personally and we have a we have a soundtrack podcast yeah that's true <laughs> that's true <laughs> Um, but I'm wondering, do you have what would be what we'll call the uh, Patrick Bateman monologue, the rant that <laughs> oh, you have, God. that's the the thing that you know too much about that is not necessarily accurate, interesting, or accurate, <laughs> or insightful, mm-hmm. or say much, mm-hmm. and that nobody really needs to hear you go on it. But boy, that's not necessarily going to stop you from going on it. I mean, that's. I'm wondering, do you have any of those? That's pretty much everything that comes out of. Matt's yeah, mouth and I got my a, mouth every I got a day. few. <laughs> I don't think that's true because I think that uh, most of what you guys say, you have larger, interesting theories about. Well, we think so. There may be moments in the in the diatribe, like <laughs> for instance, moments when when you were talking about uh, pump up the volume, where the information gets a little bit more than everybody needs. Oh yeah, Heather already did but, hers. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, was kind of, I was laughing during that because that it definitely felt like that. At I time. was like, she said, "This isn't the Robert Caro book, <laughs> right?" But your larger point was an interesting one, and I'm suggesting that his larger points are not interesting. Mm-hmm. Ah, oh so man. I'm wondering, do you ha- do you have anything? So that's I guess just like data, almost. I guess we got to try them out and see. Go for it, Matt. We'll do, for I really want to hear yours. I feel like you're going to be such a pro at this. Well, my problem is. I like to bullshit on the fly and just make up stuff um, off the top of my head as we're talking about it. But I do have a reoccurring one um, that Emily reminded me of. Oh, wait, you already and, uh, have one. Like you actually have. I, you, I have a go to that I've, I like love thinking tested. about. Nice. I love thinking about <laughs> no one likes this, but me. <laughs> That's the it's already qualifies. And you guys are going to moan and roll your eyes when I bring up the subject again. Bruce Springsteen. Because of my my <laughs> no if you want me to do the minutia of why billy joel is actually the boss of the tri-state area i will do that no but, please matt I, I okay please don't i please <laughs> this one pain this pains me to say it and i think i always have to talk it out because it hurts my heart so much oh I but wait <laughs> and you guys are going to moan because we were just talking about this movie 1984's 1984's <laughs> ghostbusters oh yeah is okay. unfortunately the greatest expression of the Reagan era we have on film. Okay. <laughs> and people don't realize this, this one before. because you, you love the Ghostbusters. You love the movie. You love New York. 
but let me just tell you what's really going on in this movie. And this is one of my favorite movies as a kid and, you know, as an adult. I love it. I still watch it. But the way people people forget how this movie starts, the Ghostbusters, Egon, Ray, and um, the others. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. I, this is like one of my favorites. And uh, Peter, Peter Venkman. Bill Murray, Egon, Ray, and Peter are. Oh, wow, you only count three Ghostbusters because huh? they, they hire Winston later on, halfway through the movie. All right, okay. and he says, no, I've, I've "If there's a steady paycheck, I'll believe in anything you say." Okay, <laughs> so they're professors at Columbia University, and because they are parapsychologists Relatable. who believe who believe yeah. in ghosts, the snooty dean kicks them out because they believe in spirits. So they're not tenured, and they're not tenured, and they're not um, true scientists. And but they're worried about ghosts existing. So instead of starting an organization, they decide to start a small business and profit off the situation. And at the firehouse, the way they contain ghosts is they develop a nuclear powered equipment to capture and contain these ghosts. So you have um, Ghostbusters shitting on the college Ivy League college institutions going for a for-profit small business. As we know, well, maybe every politician loves small business owners. That's all they talk about in every fucking speech. And they're using nuclear power. Now, the bad guy in the movie who wants to shut them down because of this containment unit is an agent from the Environmental Protection Agency. So the EPA is actually the bad guy in Ghostbusters. Are you guys getting bored yet? (laughs) And Dana Barrett and Lewis Tully, played by uh, Sigourney Reaver and Rick Moranis, are people who turn into demonic dogs who are going to help destroy America and the world. She is a cellist who lives on Central Park West at Lincoln Center, and he is a tax accountant. And these are things that um, people would love to make fun of or hate, I feel like, from, from the right side in Reagan's America. And then the final kicker is when Zool finally arrives to destroy everything, it's a woman in a really short haircut. And in the climax of the film, Bill Murray yells, nobody steps on a church in my town. So when you add all this up, it hits all the cultural notes of Reagan America hidden in one of my favorite movies. And I, I, I don't know what to do about it. I, I try to talk to people about it. And they all say the same thing. Which Either is, what are you talking stop. about or I don't care. <laughs> so and how's that for a Patrick Bateman rent? I, I, a plus. <laughs> It is occurring to me that that it is it is true podcast gold to ask somebody to to do hey can do you have a monologue that is that that everyone who ever hears it wishes that you would stop doing could you do that now for our listeners <laughs> Do you well, have one, Heather? We'll find out if it's everyone. I might yeah, have. Some, I might finally true. find some people out there. Yeah, you're right. You might. You, <laughs> might, you might find your audience. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I feel uh, Joshua knows this. I think Matt has probably pieced it together by now. I feel very very strongly about the value of all of pop country from the 90s you give me oh, some no. oh, yeah. you give Here me some go. reba yeah. you give me some garth you give me some mary chapin carpenter some Ooh. trisha yearwood and i am like ready for whatever you want to do next Okay, I think you're doing a service for the for the audience here. My question for you would be, how long is the unabridged? Like, how long is the you? Maybe maybe you've had like three drinks, and you <laughs> oh, have well, and then, your audience. Then we, your audience has shown like a little an inch of interest in well, this. God, how long is that rant? God help actually them go? in that case, <laughs> because then we start to talk about fancy, 
and exactly okay. what Reba was up to. Okay. Because that's like at All least right. a five-hour conversation right there. All right. Okay. <laughs> hey, we could do a multi-part uh, uh, fancy podcast at some point. You know, the, <sighs> like Do- Dolly's America, Dolly Parton's America, just be Reba's fancy. Oh, my God. Ten-part series. <laughs> I'm thinking of Iggy Azalea. Remember that fancy song? <laughs> I do not remember that song. Wow, but Matt. I do know who she, you're talking about. Sorry. Culturally you know, that's bankrupt. funny because my my rant is actually my rant is about Iggy Azalea. <laughs> I actually Finally. believe that Iggy Azalea is the best Iggy. Now I know some <laughs> people would say it's Iggy it's Iggy <laughs> Stradlin of Guns N' Roses. Some Ooh. people would say it's Iggy goes down under or whatever that movie is. I'm joking. I don't know. I, I, I watched that. I thought you I were watched about Iggy to say, goes down. I How did you not say Iggy Pop? Yeah, I thought you were about to say Iggy oh, Pop, and then dude, I was there's about a lot to of be... Iggy's out there. Now no, no, no. The what guy about Ziggy, the comic yeah, strip. Yeah, and and Guns and yeah. Roses was Izzy, not Iggy. Izzy, you're right. You're right. I was trying too hard to make a connection. <laughs> Iggy goes down. I was high on the fumes of Succession. Uh, Roman also, played by that, one of the Culkins, and I watched. Iggy goes it. down. It's Igby goes down. <laughs> oh, <God>. oh, okay. <laughs> Joshua, Who did knows? you name one Iggy? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, didn't, did. I missed the only. I missed the only actual Iggy. <laughs> that was amazing. Um, What's <laughs> can I can I throw out one of my honorable mentions that I just okay. thought of when you were talking about when you tell someone something and you realize you're just talking about it and they don't want to hear about it? <laughs> yeah, I think the greatest cookbook ever written is Dom DeLuise's 1988 Eat This It'll Make You Feel Better. <laughs> I wish there was I wish we had I wish we had start gotten buzzers for this. And I own it and I have theories about it. I'll tell you recipes about it, the pictures about it, and it amuses me to no end. I sometimes just take it down off the sh- Heather's dying right now. <laughs> I just take it off the shelf sometimes and leaf through it and it's just this weird fascinating amusing thing to me. And I will tell people about it and then realize I'm telling them about this. And I was like, You're oh, yeah. You're telling us he- about this right now. All right. I'm not going to go into it. Anyway, that was my <laughs> other one. But if anyone call me, if anyone wants to talk Dom DeLuise cookbooks, it's really funny. I don't think that Dom <laughs> DeLuise is on any um, really important soundtrack movies off the top of my head. <laughs> Cannonball Run. <laughs> we might not get to him. So I'll go ahead and give you all the very brief abbreviated version of my Dom DeLuise story, which is that. Ooh. Um, I had to drive James Elroy, the crime novelist, to the airport once. <laughs> what? Seriously? Yeah. For, yeah. Joshua, he, this he, is not boring now. Yeah, this, is this great. isn't okay. boring at all. And he told a story about Dom DeLuise that basically when when James Elroy was a young man and like just kind of, you know, kicking it on the streets of L.A., um, there was a long tinted window Cadillac that would cruise the streets looking for some fun. And they called that Cadillac and the driver of that Cadillac the Phantom. And so every once in a while, the Phantom would pull over and be like, hey, who wants to have some fun? And you'd climb in the car with the Phantom. Um, James Elroy didn't do that because he wasn't actually, at least according to the way he told the story, he wasn't hustling on the streets. He was just hanging out. But the people who were hustling would climb in. And apparently, the Phantom was Dom DeLuise. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I, I've heard um, I've heard I've heard similar stories before, and um, Burt Reynolds is not having it. Joshua, he was very protective of Dom DeLuise's at the time closeted homosexuality. You should I see should the say, picture of him holding eggplants in this cookbook. It this is magnificent. Is all alleged. I I have no proof of any of this. So if you're Dom, no, DeLuise, I've I've. Date, 
if so, you're Dom DeLuise's estate, you should realize that I am not claiming this is true. I'm claiming this is hearsay. <laughs> and all I'm doing is I am also participating in hearsay. This was reiterated to me by my brother's partner. I can't believe we're Because I was telling him about, about Dom DeLuise. <laughs> <laughs> what, what the um, fuck happened? We like fell into Bateman's world. <laughs> Yeah, you. Oh, you're right. Oh my God, you're right. This is it's it's insidious. Like, like, pull, we are all Patrick Bateman. We need to like gaze upward, climb out and up, <laughs> and like oh find the God. surface of the earth. You're again. right. Maybe this this satire is true. We are all Patrick Bateman. Oh, I finally felt connected to you guys for the first time in my life. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this question's going to be actually kind of weird. What's better, the movie <laughs> or the soundtrack? Uh, oh, yeah. Do they deserve each other? Um, uh, you know, is this the perfect movie soundtrack? All right, I got an answer. Go for it, Matt. The shadow soundtrack mm-hmm. is better yeah. than the real soundtrack and the real movie. Yeah, by about 10 times. Yeah, we don't even really need to elaborate, right? Yeah. That's obviously the shadow soundtrack is better than both. But let's do the, the harder thing which is yeah. the two that are left behind on the table now. God, that is actually hard. Oh, I told you, if I, saw, I, if I saw this movie in 2000, I would hate it and roll my eyes and think it was stupid. But because it was like a film history experience for me and I knew the background, um, I'd go with the movie. Wow. I would not. The, the soundtrack is not great. It's definitely no, not, it's not. It's definitely not like an album you want to listen to, but it has a couple of good and important songs on yeah. it that are that are like well worth your time. So by default, by basically like like disqualification on the of the movie, I I I'd say the soundtrack is better. Actually, wait. Here's an interesting. Here's undermining my own point. You just made me think of something. Another way to phrase it is, what would you? rather be made to put on again the movie or the soundtrack oh by far that right and for me it would probably be the soundtrack because now that i've had the movie experience i'm glad i had it but i don't know if i'm ever going to watch this movie again i'll answer it this way if i was going to recommend that people listen to the soundtrack the official cd pressed a soundtrack on coke records Mm mm-hmm or watch the movie, I would recommend watching the movie. I don't like the movie. I mm. think the movie sucks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, you might like it. And, um, you know, even it's kind of interesting. I mean, when you guys talk about it, I'm, it makes me interested in it. Although I wasn't interested when I was watching it. If you know. haven't seen it, I think it's worth a watch just because it's part of the culture and people reference it. And it's very memed. It's cool to see Christian Bale early on. You know, there's some interesting stuff in it. There are so many, like, big, enormous summer blockbuster movies that don't have great soundtracks or or even great shadow soundtracks. 
Um, but but what they do have is one like breakout awesome single. And I can already think of a couple. Yeah, and they do like it, it kind of feels like those deserve at least a little bit of our attention. Is so, Titanic Christmas or summer? I don't know. I don't that's know. Find but that's out. a great question. Exactly. Um, so what if we look at these, what you might think of as like the soundtrack version of a one hit wonder. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cool. and put them all together on our own little mixtape of like summer jams, 2022, where you, we, uh, where we take a look at soundtrack one hit wonders. Okay. Now yeah, I'm seeing an angle. Yeah. And, and, uh, and those are and those are all from from you know big, and then do big we, summer popcorn movies. You know another reason why this is a good idea is summer, baby. <laughs> it's summer. <laughs> Look out your window. I guess we're all gonna have to find a, f- a favorite too. Well, I think maybe the the most fun way for us to do this would be for us to work together to get a, a list of the ones that we want to talk about, and yeah. then uh, and and then. Uh, maybe rank them and do what and if do our, like what, a, what and do like a, what if our listeners want to send us yes in that would some, be great uh, suggestions I would as well love to hear those I would suggestions too. i would love to hear them uh on twitter and on instagram and uh i think that we we've we would have some really good recommendations and then we could you know do a little do a little countdown yeah yeah i think that sounds good Go, ghostbusters yeah number that one. sounds cool joking oh my god matt did you just say fucking ghostbusters under your breath mm-hmm. and then i said i'm joking real quick before anyone can yell at me <laughs> <laughs> ghostbusters 2 too hot to handle too cold to hold they call the ghostbusters and they're in control i can keep going <laughs> they had them throwing parties for a bunch of children well, all the time the slime was under the building more okay more? so <laughs> We'll we'll do this then in uh, next episode then and which so means no one has act- no listeners have any homework those listeners who are right. out there being like super fans and watching a yeah. movie alongside yeah. us in between episodes you get you get the fucking week off baby Ima- imagine <laughs> how you'll spend your time all right so in two weeks summer movie extravaganza and then we'll be back to our regular scheduled program after our very special episode. And our, and our very special episode will will not include any teenage pregnancy. I don't think. Actually, wait. Maybe I shouldn't promise uh, that. Yeah, you better hold off on that. <laughs> so, listeners, send us send us your thoughts. Uh, the more the more we get uh, from you, the better. So, we'd love to hear what you think would be a good candidate. Send them on over to uh, TPMS Podcast. You can do that at Twitter or catch us on Instagram. You can also email us at theperfectmoviesoundtrack at gmail.com if you're uh, you know, worried that uh, folks on social media will make fun of you because of your song suggestion, which, of course, we would find them and beat them up if they did. That won't happen. So, yeah, we're excited to get you all involved and are looking forward to hearing your suggestions, really. But there is, unfortunately, one last bit of business we have to cover before we go. You know what was bound to happen here at the Perfect Movie soundtrack? That we would have to issue a correction about something at some point. And here we are. On behalf of Matt and the Perfect Movie soundtrack crew, we'd like to apologize. In this episode, Gozer the Gozerian was referred to as Zool. This was a mistake, and we apologize for any pain we've caused the Ghostbusters community. For Matt and Heather, this is Joshua, and we'll see you in two weeks for a special Summer Movies episode of the Perfect Movie soundtrack.